What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 472. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we have recurring guest Mackenzie Lambert, who you might remember from our episodes about Bruno Mattei and Enzo G. Castellari. And we're going to be dipping our toes into the world of Spanish horror with director Amando de Asorio. And I love doing these kind of episodes because usually you pitch directors that I am either totally unaware of or vaguely aware of where I'm just like a, a total blank slate in their filmography. And for me, the, the podcast is that it's most exciting when I get to discover a, an untouched, intact filmography of a forgotten kind of genre maestro. So welcome back, Mr. Mackenzie Lambert. Thanks, James. I always, uh, I'm always glad to introduce you to the hidden filth and sleaze that is uh, within the cinema world that has yet to be discovered by you. Well, it's like with filth and sleaze and uh, grindhouse genre entertainment, etc., I feel like people love to frown upon them or look down on them. But when you have one of those kind of movies that is done superbly well, it transcends <laughs> its bu- budget limitations, transcends its genre limitations, and you can find some truly extraordinary movies. And there's so many of these people that I uh, still have yet to really do the deep dive on. I mean, there's some people out there like, uh, I was just bumping across some names recently, like Umberto Lenzi is one of those guys that I really want to learn about and uh, Jesus Franco or Jesus Franco. Like they're just, they're, there's a long list of obscure directors, uh, so kind of like 60s, 70s Euro sleaze that I, I still really want to do the deep dive on. Oh yeah, I definitely have my eyes on Joe D'Amato because I know you not too long ago caught Beyond the Darkness, which yeah, yeah. must have been quite the experience. Yeah, uh, well, I mentioned him also, and oh, actually, I, have, I haven't mentioned him yet because I, I'm about to post a video about uh, my favorite trashy fantasy movies from the 1980s, and there's one movie in there where Joe D'Amato worked under a pseudonym because he was so embarrassed to be associated David with Hills. the film. Is it the Ator films? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes. So uh, I, I would be all in on. Tackling some Joe Diamato anytime. How much Keefe is in this movie? Miles of Keefe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, for people out there who have not heard your previous two appearances, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, all that good stuff. I'm Mackenzie Lambert. I am the host of the podcast Mac and the Movies, where I go from out ho- where I go sorry where I go from Grindhouse to Art House to to the, the- outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Uh, there's been some trash. Uh, from the mainstream to the obscure, you can find me on Spotify, iTunes, Podomatic. Uh, you can find me on Google Play. Uh, last episode I did was on the Monty Python Trinity. Uh, next one coming up is going to be a tribute to the belated Billy Drago, who we lost uh, about two weeks ago. I'm going to be doing a bit of a tribute to him. And I'm also following that up with a tribute to Rudger Hauer because we're losing all the good character actors now. Yeah, it's a sad thing where... You're always, I mean, every year people are like, fuck you, 2016, or fuck you, 2017. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, it's just the passage of time. Like, people die. Like, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, filmmakers die, directors, actors die. And it's one of those things where people who we might not necessarily regard as greats now, 20, 30, 40 years from now, after they've accumulated a giant body of work, will probably react in the same way when uh, when they move on. So, yeah, Rudger, Rudger Hauer. Total badass, obviously frequent collaborator of Paul Verhoeven. They did so many great movies together. But he just was one of those guys where big budget, low budget, genre film, art film, he didn't care if the script was interesting and the part was good. He would just 
hurl himself into it and it just has so many extraordinary performances that he accumulated over the years. So I'm definitely a Rudger Hauer fan. He was the only one that was keeping me watching Hobo with a Shotgun because normally I it's not a film I would personally care for, but Hauer, he just threw himself into that amazing role. Yeah, the first thing I think I saw him in was a split second in the movie theater which was, you know, a fun little obscure sci-fi genre film. But I love him in things like Flesh and Blood. If you want to get like, if you want to get a little erotic cinema going, you can check out things like Turkish Delight. But even like in little things like Batman Begins, you're like, holy shit, there's Roger Howard. Yeah, and he just, and he just the Vampire it. Slayer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he he's awesome. He he was he was one of the greats. Well, how did you first hear about and discover Amando de Asorio? Because Spanish horror, I'm almost a complete total blank slate except for some movies that are kind of a mix between erotica and horror that came out in roughly the same period but it seems like there's something in the water like in the 60s and 70s where he and a bunch of his like-minded contemporaries thought well let's make a an, um, an unpretentious commercial spanish cinema embracing certain commercial genre trends etc whether it's horror or perhaps a little bit of skin i know they were kind of in a weird spot where French money was coming in, and they wanted to have their movies play in Spain, so they're pretty rigorous codes of censorship. They were starting to loosen up by the 70s, but it's a really interesting chapter in film history that I knew very little about before preparing for this episode, but how did he first kind of appear on your radar? I was first exposed to uh, Spanish horror through the George Grau film, Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, a.k.a. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. And from there, I was like, okay, this was really good, and I want to go ahead and see what else uh, does uh, Spain have to offer. And that's where I came across Amando de Osorio while I was going through as many wormholes as possible, uh, or rabbit holes, uh, for the uh, internet to find out about more about Spanish horror. And that's where I came across Amando de Osorio. And it was, uh, we'll talk about this later on, but it was when I heard about the Planet of the Apes knockoff for tombs of the blind dead yeah, the alternate ending. you're like this yeah. is my guy <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly and so i was like okay i want to see more of this guy and that's where i came across you know the other entries in the blind dead trilogy uh that's where i actually when i did my grindhouse uh series of last year i found out that on the collection was one of his other films demon witch child which we'll dive into later as well and so i was like okay i want to get as much of this guy into my veins as possible because i'm loving what i've been watching well my biggest takeaway while watching this was that at some point in the 70s, I don't know where, I don't know how, Sam Raimi definitely saw some of these. And I Peter think... Peter Jackson as well. Yeah, the Evil Dead franchise, though, I think would be a different thing entirely in the absence of Amanda de Osorio. And I'm not saying there's like a, a, like a one-to-one direct correlation, mm-hmm. but in terms of the titles and the look of some of the creatures and, and just certain scenes like the ending of Evil Dead, I was like, huh... I can't prove it. I don't have any direct evidence, but I really feel strongly that at some point Sam Raimi, as an impressionable teen, was catching wind of some of these strange vibes going on over in Spain. Oh, yeah. And with Peter Jackson, when you see the Nazgul in Lord of the Rings and then you go to the, the Templars on horseback, it's Absolutely. like, OK, yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 that I, I didn't even think about that while watching it, but now that you pointed out, it's like, yes, holy shit. A hundred percent without a doubt. Well, let's wind the clock way back to the early beginnings of his career because I was able to learn a little bit from this little 30-minute documentary that's available on YouTube. It's in Spanish, but it's got English subtitles. Mm-hmm. And I know that he was a movie fanatic. He grew up in the um, the northwestern province of Spain. I think it's called Galicia. 
And his father wanted him to be a banker, and he did that for a little while. But basically, in all of his spare time, he was watching movies, writing screenplays, and finally decided he just had to go all in. And I know that he went off and made this black and white movie that was basically banned. It's really hard to find now, but a lot of people for a while thought it was an, a, a lost movie. But he made, what is that first flick called? Boom, 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 like Black Flag. Hang on, I've got IMDb open right here. I'm, bam, 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 bam. It is called The Black Flag from 1956. And it's basically an anti-death penalty movie. And at this time, Franco was like, well, how dare you criticize our regime? Go away. And it took him eight years to really get his, uh, his start. And it's in the 60s with the rise of the Westerns as such a popular genre in Europe that he got a chance to do Tomb of the Pistolero. I feed under the cold ground Somewhere near Denver town Sleeps a fellow that they call the show. He was shot down by the law Before he could draw his roaring pistol Shut down in old Colorado as he lay dying on the ground. Someone heard him sigh goodbye, my love, and adios, my pistol And take my bucking bronco Send them to the girl that I love so Tell her that I was shot down Somewhere near Denver town They shot me, shot me down to the ground but we'll meet again way up above. Goodbye, my love, and adios, my pistolero, my pistolero. Yeah, I don't know exactly what you would call a uh, Spanish Western because I've heard tortilla Western, I've heard chorizo Western, uh, the cinema a paella gave, Western. Yeah, gazpacho Western. Yeah. It's like I think but, paella works because I mean spaghetti is kind of like a quintessential Italian dish. I think paella is a quintessential mm-hmm. Spanish. Dish. I'd call it a paella Western, but it kind of looks right. and feels like a spaghetti Western. But it's yeah, it's but it's, you know we can just or we can just call it a Western. Just keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and the, the fact that it's shot in black and white, it kind of give, actually gives it a, a higher production value than we may give it credit for. Yeah, and it's that, uh, John Carpenter's pointed out on, on the past, and so has Robert Rodriguez, that when you shoot a low-budget movie in 2.35 to 1, it automatically gives your movie a look and scale that is kind of priceless. Just something about that aspect ratio, like, wow, this is a, a CinemaScope movie, even if it's not CinemaScope, just that mm-hmm. aspect ratio just communicates class and scope etc so this is a 2.35 to 1 black and white western and it looks great but um for people out there who i mean because i i'd never seen this before before i am mm-hmm. i'm assuming most of our listeners have seen 
maybe, if, if any, one or two of these, but perhaps none. So get, what is the premise of Tomb of the Pistolero? It's a very simple Western premise. The brother of a gunfighter comes to a town to learn about how his brother was killed, and he's caught in the middle of a battle between a banker and the group of exiled guards of the slain gunfighter. Uh, we get some interesting bar fights, some basic acrobatics. Uh, we get a press slam through a window, which was actually reminded me of, you know, Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill with having these crazy fight choreography in what would possibly be kind of a serious Western film. Uh, I was also impressed with the code of ethics in the contest. You can't shoot an unarmed man. You can't shoot a man in the back. And here we have the film climax with a fist fight instead of a gun draw, yeah. which is actually a nice I, I, Does subversive. anybody even get killed in the entire movie? Uh, actually, no. I think <laughs> Which this might is be unusual a for a Western. <laughs> There's the threat of violence and death like every step of the way, but I was like, does anybody actually die this? <laughs> Not good. I yeah, you remember. had the, the, the threat of rape in the beginning with the girl coming to town, but even that didn't come through yeah, her anything. She Tom was Bogard, rescued. Who's a total star. I love kind of the uh, Sir Galahad, you know, tough guy who like, will, like he like will drink milk or drink tea. Like he's very pure, <laughs> but also but very square jawed and very tough and very resolute and very resourceful. And this character he's played got that by Rod Hudson look about him. Yeah, this guy played by George Martin. He's a total stud. And the one thing it, it definitely suffers from I mean, all these movies suffer from a situation where uh, Mondo de Osorio had a grand vision that was hamstrung by limited resources where mm -hmm. he would be shooting these movies sometimes in three to four weeks and he'd have producers just forcing all sorts of ridiculous um, kind of constraints and circumstances upon him. But he was a true kind of nimble, dexterous director where he took budgets and schedules very seriously because he knew he'd be out of business if he didn't stick to certain rigorous schedules. And I'm really yep. impressed that he was able to genre hop and make you know giant monster movies and zombie movies and vampire movies and westerns and just stay in business for as long as he did i think it's um it's a discipline that too often gets overlooked oh yeah absolutely and i want to say that if I'm, I'm sure the producers and the people that were kind of in the osorio's ear were still not recovering from the franco era like they were still under his regulations they still were under that mindset and it probably took them a while before we could finally get to stuff like things of the living dead or tombs of the blind dead where they were able to really exercise the extent of their powers as yeah. far as horror films go. Yeah, you can definitely see things slowly but surely loosening up over the course of his career. But I just, I, I love weird forgotten westerns. It's like strange songs. Like there's, you have this really weird dub song in a bar with the blonde sings this song, like, let us drive that golden coach to the sea. And I just love it when westerns feel, like kind of lack that professional polish and you just get into this strange kind of, um, kind of forgotten cinema land. And I definitely was, I actually, I think I enjoyed this of all the movies, I think this is one of my favorites just because it's so different from the rest of the films in his filmography. Like if, mm -hmm. after you watch a lot of Blind Dead movies in a row, you're like, all right, yeah. well, I, I, I kind of get the Blind Dead thing. Mm -hmm. But this, I, I like how it showed um, some flexibility on De Osorio's part. Oh, yeah. And it's it's always great to see, like I always imagine John Carpenter actually making a real Western, like not just these Odyssey Westerns that he's tagged for himself. But it's like, it's great to see a horror director do something completely different than what people are think of him as so it's it's always a key trait absolutely well it is his horror movies that he's best known for so let's start dipping our toes into his transition into the genre i guess is fangs of the living dead aka malenka the vampire's niece his uh, his first foray into uh, the wonderful world of horror Grandmother Malenka and 
You're the image of her, Sylvia. There's something going on here. Something evil. An insatiable blood sucker. And I'm looking at I saw this movie and it's like I'm thinking, okay, this is him basically trying to recreate the feel of a hammer film. You know, Without with the repressed section. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. the, very, very classy, the, a lot of mansions and white gowns and cleavage mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And I also can't help but feel that maybe uh Polanski's fearless vampire killers had an influence as well, just because there's some really funny scenes with the Max character. You know, he's flirting with the vampire, they're in the cemetery scene. So this is Osorio just trying to match some of his contemporaries that are further west of him, like the Hammer and like Polanski. Well, it's also I, I like how he's noticing that certain genres are popular, a certain look, a certain style, a certain flavor is catching on. So why not jump on the bandwagon? And I feel like that's part of the fun of European cinema in the sixties and seventies is how many knockoffs, ripoffs, unofficial <laughs> sequels, remakes, etc., being made all over the all over the uh, all over the continent. And I think Thanks to the Living Dead, obviously it's worth seeing just to see Anita Ekberg in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everybody loves her from La Dolce Vita. And of course, was it Killer Nun that she did uh, in, in the yeah, 70s? Yeah, the one video nasty, yeah. Yeah, it's like I haven't seen a lot of Anita Ekberg. I've, I've seen a lot of like her like erotic pictures and things like that that she's um was in in like the 50s and 60s. So it was cool to see her in that. But I, what I like also, we have our first movie here where we have... a. C- conflicting versions of the movie out there because for the yep. English audience we have quite a different ending whereas it's basically in the European version it's all in a la- basically this model inherits a castle and she's basically they're trying to drive her crazy and convince her that she comes from this family of vampires because they're kind of trying to rob her of her inheritance but as it turns out in the American version this guy actually is a vampire and disintegrates so it's a completely different story yeah we're, we're first we're told it's a hoax and then now we're seeing evidence that they actually were vampires so yeah there, there's a lot of confusion as far as the ending with this film but when you mentioned earlier this character max he absolutely his uh, i thought he was hysterical there's this he basically is making out with this girl that he thinks is a vampire and she's like trying mm-hmm. to bite his neck and he's just giggling hysterically <laughs> he's such a uh, like almost like an italian stereotype where he just he's in the mood for love and whether it's a vampire human it doesn't matter he's just this girl's pretty and he, he's going for it yeah and i'm also kind of seeing some hints of future films because the lynch mob scene i immediately thought of the opening of full cheese the beyond oh I, yeah I that's fair that's that. totally fair absolutely well, so not only did he kind of you know play off of other conventions but he also kind of laid the path down for future directors well, here's an interesting uh, gimmick that I read about related to the movie that when uh, they released it, the producers offered free psychiatric care for anyone disturbed <laughs> by Malenka. And they also did the same thing for Curse of the Living Dead and Revenge of the Living Dead, where obviously I feel like there's so many hucksters in the 50s and 60s that would rely upon these gimmicks, like whether it was like William Castle putting oh, like, yeah, exactly shockers in the Castle. seats and things like that. Or Herschel Gordon Lewis, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of miss that where like today it's all about like, oh, well, we need to offer you like, 
like a trigger warning just in case like you need to find like mm -hmm. a safe space to recover. But then they were kind of doing the same thing, but they're turning it into this kind of cynical marketing gimmick. Like if you're too traumatized by this experience, like we're going to work we're going to make it up to you. And I feel like that's something you could actually probably do today because of people's heightened sensitivity about everybody feeling safe at all times. And so maybe there's oh, a, yeah. maybe there's a market opportunity there waiting to be seized upon. Yeah, bring back, repeat to yourself, it's only a movie. Exactly. It's only a movie. Well, but fuck, with that movie, Last House on the Left, it's kind of justified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That movie is sick as hell. So, yeah. But oh, yeah, I, and I, other I, movies rode that train, too. You've got uh, Don't Look in the Basement, use that same one. Uh, Don't Open the Window, which was the American version of Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. They use that same exact media uh, marketing program. And it's like, it, it's effective. You can't deny it. Yeah, carnival barkers, hucksterism, all that stuff. I kind of I, I like all that stuff. Now, with the release dates of the rest of his horror movies, I see like on Wikipedia and IMDb sometimes some conflicting years. So I'm just going to defer to you when it comes to the order in which they're released because he's basically launches into this incredibly productive period where he creates the majority of his heart of his best movies over the next like seven or eight years, just like boom, 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 all, all in mm -hmm. a row. So after Fangs of the Living Dead, does it, is it Lorelai's Grasp or Tombs of the Blind Dead that is the next on the list? I went with IMDb, and according to them, they said that 1971 was Tombs of the Blind Dead. So chronologically, that's his next film. Blind terror strikes fear into the hearts of innocent people. The morgue receives the victims of the blind dead. There's no escape from the blind dead. They are the Templars, devil worshippers, a death cult that has risen from their thousand-year-old tombs to begin a horrible reign of terror. Please wait! Pop, look over there! A beautiful young girl is trapped by the evil forces. No one is safe from their curse. They're coming! sound in the ancient cemetery brings the evil creatures from their tombs. The Templars perform their sadistic rites. A virgin is sacrificed in a blood ritual. death for those who can't escape the blind dead. Coming soon from your cemetery.
All right, well, let's, let's dive into Tombs of the Blind Dead. This is the beginning of his quartet, so give us mm-hmm. the overall premise of his, I mean, obviously, the franchise that he's best known for. Uh, it starts with a couple on holiday uh, where they meet up with a boarding school friend. Uh, the guy of the couple ends up becoming more interested in the boarding school friend, leading to his fiance jumping off the train. She ends up in the ruins of the Templars, who come to life at night, searching for victims. She's found dead the next day, and then her friends investigate with the help of a local smuggler. Uh, they go to the ruins, only to come face to face with the Templars. I like this because... It's traditionally a mystery film. They're trying to figure out what happened to their friend, the circumstances of her death. And then it's it's not the fact that we know what happened to her friend. And now it just comes from the anticipation of them finding out what happened to her friend and coming face to face with the Templars. Whereas this film really doesn't leave a lot to, to be mysterious. It just tells you point blank what's going to happen. And it's going to lead you to anticipate what's going to happen with these other characters. So what I like about the Blind Dead movies, though, is that you have you're taking advantage of history with the Knights Templar, but basically this is like a corrupt version of them. Where centuries ago they were blood drinking, like sex crazed cannibals, doing all sorts of horrible things to beautiful naked women, and they got blinded as out of punishment. And now their undead forms rise from the grave every night, and they're still blind, so they have to operate by <laughs> sense of hearing. But they're yep. kind of zombies, kind of vampires, vampires. but also have <laughs> armor and swords and cloaks and ride horses which is so cool because so many horror movies just keep rehashing and reusing the same archetypes Mm -hmm. over and over and over again and as i was watching i was like all right well i've never seen undead zombie vampires in armor with swords hunting people down you know riding around in slow motion and like fucking daredevil operating by a sense of hearing in order to like that's their that's their big weakness if you're real quiet they can't get you and so my hat's off to them for at least inventing a new type of monster for horror movies. Yeah, and the, and the thing with uh, De Osorio, especially with this film, he is just a master of atmosphere. I mean, using the monastery. Okay, I apologize. I'm going to probably butcher the Spanish of this, but uh, Santa Maria la Real de Valadiglesia was the the setting for the graves of the Templars, which was just beautiful during the day and then they get the atmosphere just right at night. Yeah, 100%. I spent a little time in Spain, summer 1993. I spent six weeks over there and I loved getting to visit like old castles and old cities and that sort of thing. It's such a cool country. I need to go back. I mean, goddamn, it's been 26 years at this point since I've been to Spain. And uh, I just, yeah, I love the language, love the food, but I really loved how pretty much every single old town or village that we went to had a big ass castle or a beautiful church and they would sell <laughs> weapons. I, I bought, of course, I was a 17 year old, 16 year old kid. So I bought like a, a spike ball and chain and I bought a sword. And it was, in the early 90s, you know, pre 9 11, when I came home from Spain, I just walked right through customs holding a fucking sword unwrapped and they just waved me through. <laughs> it was just no, 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 no big deal. Just a yeah, those were those were simpler times. And it's funny with this, for each movie, the origins of the Templars change. So that kind of helps keep them freshened up a little bit. Here, the, they're tried for heresy, they're hung till they're dead, and then birds peck out their eyes. That's for this film. And then their origins change for the next film. So that's kind of a way of keeping the audience on their toes. Kind of, just, okay, this is the exact same monster, but it kind of similar to the last monsters you saw. Yeah, and it's, I, you can definitely tell that Amado de Osorio is trying to save money where he can. I almost feel like there's certain sequences that perhaps were reused in different movies where he really loves the strange use of sound in these slow motion shots of the knights riding on their horses. And I felt like between like the, the, the first and the second, perhaps some was getting reused. But 
the, he's we, totally guilty of that. Yeah, it's, you're but not with this first it. movie, we have some massive discrepancies between different versions out there, and I should warn oh, yeah. people. Some of the versions of his movies available on Amazon have been totally fucked up, and it blows my mind that they were they didn't see this in the transfer. But Amazon has a lot of these movies available in this weird compressed thing where they kind of squish it in from the sides, from basically one point eight five to one to Academy ratio, and it's like in terms of quality control, it just whoever distributed and restored all these movies and put them out on DVD, it blows my mind that they wouldn't be all up in arms and like all over Amazon's ass to repost mm-hmm. these movies properly. But give us some uh, some history on this first flick in terms of the different versions that are available out there. Because obviously uh, the Spanish version has, uh, it's a, the sequence of events is told out of order because the American version mm-hmm. opens up with the Templars. With the sacrifice. But yeah, yeah, but then in the Spanish version, it comes much later in the film. Yeah, the, the Spanish version, if you're going to go for the censored version in America, you're going to be missing out on a lesbian flashback sequence, uh, some of the sacrificing gore, uh, the infamous rape scene, uh, and then the ending on the train. I mean, the uncensored version ending, it's just you're, one of the great moments is a child being held by her mother as the mother's blood just drips all over the child's face. It's a pretty messed up sequence, but at the same time, it's, it's beautiful. Luckily, I was able to see the Spanish version. And it's I think it's vastly superior because even just during the sacrifice sequence, it's more, you know, there's more skin. And if you, if you like mm-hmm. watching horror movies with nudity, you're going to look for whatever version has the, the most skin. So that definitely is, a, is stronger in that cut. And yeah, the train sequence is wild because I love how basically the, that train scene at the end where you have this girl who's trying to get on the train and she just won't move her legs and these guys are trying to get her on the train but because she's so uncooperative and so uncoordinated and so frozen with terror that these Templars just get on the train and start fucking everybody up. It's like, God damn you, bitch. Like, like move, run. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, that, that scene was hysterical. But with the lesbian scene that you mentioned that's obviously missing from the American cut, I was watching this documentary on YouTube, and one of the actresses involved said that you know it was kind of awkward for her because she much preferred the company of men. So she said, she asked Amando de Osorio, well, can we get a little wine on the set? And he's like, sure. So you, the, the girls got <laughs> properly trashed and just went to town and did their scene. And yeah, it's, uh, it definitely is a, a nice bit of seasoning to add to the flit. And that music by Anton Garcia Abril that they just used for the rest of the series, it is just, it reminds me of those classic haunted house records from the 1960s, like Through the Ventures of the Haunted House. And that's just, it's, I got a soft spot for the music by Abril. It's just wonderful stuff. Now, you mentioned earlier the Planet of the Apes post-apocalyptic thing. So give us the lowdown (laughs) on on that because that's particularly entertaining. All right. As is common with a lot of foreign distributors, they want to go ahead and have their movie cash in on the success of another movie. And so here you have this film about the dead coming back to life. You would think they would do Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It just makes the most sense. But someone got the idea of, hey, let's go ahead and have this movie connect to Planet of the Apes. Why? Because fuck it, we want money. I read about it, but I haven't seen it. So this is the plan. Here's the description I read. The plan was to replace the film's original setting with a post-apocalyptic feature in which the undead were deceased intelligent apes, <laughs> similar to the ones seen <laughs> in Planet of the Apes. But rather than doing a, a reshoot, a location footage from the film was edited together. The Templar flashback sequence was removed and a narration track explaining the premise was introduced as an, uh, for the introduction for the film. And so the rev- revised 
surprise title of the film was just Revenge from Planet Eight. Planet Eight. Yes. Yep. So uh, you want to talk about people quite literally just like uh, just in the most cynical way possible, assuming that the audience is just like beneath contempt when it comes to their intelligence. That was their attempt to, to cash in on the current craze. You sure Disney was taking notes? So next up, would it be the Lorelei's Grasp? Yes. Uh, I, did you want to go through the whole blended series just to get out of the way, or do you want to deal with chronologically? Uh, well, um, uh, dealer's choice is entirely up to you. This was your idea, and this is your, your topic, so I, I'm in your capable hands. Terror once again treks its legendary course, making your flesh creep with pleasure. Night. When the unliving rise again from their graves, you will tremble with the return of the evil dead. Their hell-born revenge for which there is no assurance of protection, nor will you escape the fear, the anxiety which the return of the evil dead provokes. A new high in excitement. Return of the Evil Dead. The Return of the Evil Dead with Tony Kendall and Fernando Sancho. The terrifying thriller of the year. Do not attend this film alone. We suggest you bring at least one large partner to hold you tightly. The lifeless horsemen will make this theater into a living horror. The return of the evil dead. The return of the evil dead. You sure you're in fit condition? And don't scream. Or titled Return of the Blind Dead. I've also seen it called Return of the, Return Evil, of the Dead, Evil Dead, which is where we start seeing some of the influence on future franchises. <laughs> and I would, it's very similar to Terminator 2 and Shocking Dark with Bruno Matthias. Like, I want this movie in like a 1985 video store. And someone who just finished watching Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, they pick up this film and just look of disappointment on their face when they see the film. That I, that I just want to see just for shits and giggles. Well, the <laughs> advertising for all these, and much like the fantasy movies of the 1980s, where they didn't have much money for budgets or special, eff- I mean, for, for locations or special effects or anything, but what they did have money for was gorgeous posters. And the posters for all these, you're just like, fuck, yes. Mm-hmm. Like they, they promise so much more than any movie could ever hope to deliver. <laughs> so I imagine someone's, uh, I guess, disappointment if they're an Evil Dead fan and then they look get Return of the Evil Dead, they're going to see that gorgeous poster and be like, oh my God, like we're in for like the horror experience of a lifetime. And what they're going to get is, you know, it's... None of these movies had the budgets that they needed, so you have to really be interested in like horror history or Spanish horror, mm-hmm. etc., to kind of get engaged. Because I feel like it's it would be tough for just casual horror movies, movie fans, to just dive into these and have a really great experience the way they might with like 
a George A. Romero movie or something like that. But if you are interested in the history of the genre, I find them absolutely riveting. But, but give us the premise of Return of the Evil Dead. Okay, uh, this premise begins with another origin for the Templars. Originally, the Templars were captured and they had their eyes burned out. Uh, and we open to the presence of the town celebrating the demise of the Templars. And they get a surprise when the Templars come back to life and attack the town. I found this one to be less exciting just because it completely plays off of Night of the Living Dead, whereas the first film kind of had its own plot going for it. But this one does have, I think, a little more skin, and it's got some mm-hmm. nice granny panties. It's a weird thing. As granny <laughs> panties kind of get frowned upon more and more by young girls, I kind of like what the image of girls in the 60s and 70s who are smoking hot, who are wearing mm-hmm. these like old-fashioned <laughs> granny panties. And as I mentioned before, we do have some slow-motion footage from the first that gets reused. And but there's a great bit where this old corrupt guy is basically letting this little girl act yes. as bait and talk while he sneaks away and tries to escape from the Templar. I was like, all right, well, that's, that's a, a cool little bit. So I like the way they continue to play upon this one uh, blind spot of the Templars that they, they, they can't use their eyes. Oh, yeah. Fernando Sancho as Mayor Duncan is just an absolute bastard. Uh, but at least we got, uh, let's see, we got Frank Branya, who was just everywhere. Uh, he worked with Leone and Spencer and Hill. He worked on uh, pieces and pod people. Uh, he's sort of is the turncoat. And then you have the lead, Tony Kendall, who was definitely eye candy for the ladies. Let's, let's be honest about that. Uh, he's got the charm. He's worked with Bava and Christopher Lee, uh, Whipping the Body, Three Fantastic Supermen. Lone Fleming returns, but only in a much smaller role, which I thought was really disappointing because she carried that first film pretty much by herself. Well, what's interesting also with this one is that maybe like the horror is probably less effective because you just have so many characters. It's a weird thing where like an entire town gets attacked by these fucking Templars, mm-hmm. whereas in the first movie, you definitely have like one or two people kind of isolated off on their own. And it's funny how like, he made no most horror movies. It's like the status quo is not really like affected or altered, where it's like the, the rest of the world kind of goes on totally blissfully unaware. But with this, it's just a full blown invasion of this town. Yeah, and it's I, I I know a lot of people like this one just because it has a faster pace to it. But for me personally, I like the slow build up dread of the original. So this one is gonna you know your your mileage may vary as far as what your horror tastes are concerned well the best thing you can do is just watch the whole quartet and yep. just discover which one is to your liking i enjoyed like the mongoloid character in this uh, there's a funny bit at one point where he pokes his head up and says to like tell like his people that he's with that they're like they're safe and he immediately gets yeah and he gets decapitated and so yeah so there's some great little lighthearted bits now i only got to see the english dubbed version of this return of the evil dead but i know there are multiple cuts of the movie out there what are any um major distinctions between the various versions of the movie? Uh, really just the less skin and they tone down the violence. So all the stuff you would go to see the Spanish version for, they just completely minimized on the American version. It, it wasn't as much of a cut compared to the previous film because the last film, they cut like, what, almost 20 minutes out of it. Here, you're only going to lose about maybe, what, five, six minutes. So, yeah, it's a dramatically less edited out. Gotcha. So what is? Oh, hang on. I'm looking at my notes now. Oh, so it's Ghost Galleon. So this is what's funny about this, like the series, how like the names started getting really unusual. But I guess it's <laughs> Ghost Galleon that is next in the franchise. Which I know this is one where Armando de Osorio got really frustrated with his producers, where they essentially made him shoot a scene with like a toy boat in a bathtub at yes, one point. Yes, in a bathtub. <laughs> which 
if, if, for people who find low budget movies charming, if you love watching like It Conquered the World, like Roger Corman movies where you can see like a two by four shoving a monster out into frame before they kind of pull it back out of frame and they just leave it in the movie. Like, these are the kind of moments that those kind of horror fans live for. Oh uh, God, yeah the the embarrassing use of miniatures. That's just it adds to the it adds to the campiness of these films, which was absolutely unintended. But at the same time, you, you can't help but love quiche stuff like that. Well, that the thing that's often lost by people who love bad movies and then they try to do like homages to old bad movies, they forget that these old bad movies were made with complete total mm-hmm. sincerity, and they weren't. Yep intended to be laughed at there might be unintentional laughter by kind of snarky hipsters who enjoy laughing at the uh, you know the shoestring budgets but when people try to replicate that they forget that you have to make it like you're making like William Friedkin's The Exorcist in spite of the fact that you're working with one one thousandth of the budget then you actually can get like that the flavor that the people are looking for so yeah mm-hmm. he wasn't trying to get unintentional laughs with these he made The Ghost Galleon the best horror movie he possibly could under the circumstances. Yeah, and although, to be fair, you kind of get those rare exceptions of those who purposely try to make a bad movie, like Lost Skeleton of Cadavra is probably one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It's like it, you have to be really good at making a film purposely bad and yet still be appealing without coming off as completely cynical. Like, I see uh, Sharknado. Don't even get me started on Sharknado, which I just absolutely cannot stand as far as purposely made bad movies because that's exactly. what they are. It, it, it's, it's pure cynicism. There's no love. There's no affection. They're just basically, they're making bad movies on purpose for people who don't like movies who like mm-hmm. laughing at bad movies. So there's no place to kind of insert myself in that community because I, I just don't even, I, I know there's a lot of people out there who just love to make fun of shitty movies, but I don't know. I, I love movies. So I much prefer to watch a bad movie made with a lot of heart than a bad movie made with total cynicism. Same here. And uh, this one is actually really a drag because a half hour into the film, we finally see our first Templar. And then it's not until an hour into the film that we see our first gory, one and only gory effect, uh, decapitation. So this is going to offer the least of what you're probably looking for in a Spanish horror film. Yeah, and I guess the the bits that I liked were, is like, obviously because he's making a movie with nothing, he relies upon smoke and mist to basically obscure the fact that he's got nothing to work with. So I do think Mm -hmm. it is pretty atmospheric, and I'm naturally just afraid of, um, you know, monsters or threats related to the water. So I I did enjoy the atmosphere of some of those scenes where people are like lost at sea and encountering the ghost galleon and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So I was impressed with that, but yeah, but you can definitely tell that Amanda de Osorio was f- fighting an uphill battle of, while wearing ice skate. What's, what's that line from Blade? Like, motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill or, or something along those lines. <laughs> well, Amanda de Osorio was trying to ice skate uphill when, when making the Ghost Galleon. Exactly. It's uh, And I'll credit him because he made the best out of the situation, but still the final product suffers from that.
the Night of the Seagulls. With Maria Costi, Victor Petit, Sandra Mozorowski, Julie James. The pretty girls, when they die, they become the seagulls that scream and cry. They're the damned spirits of the sacrificed girls. The Night of the Seagulls. What's that? A beast of the sea. Must be a god belonging to some unknown culture. What's going to happen to us now? I don't know. But this idol is responsible for all the sacrifices. Directed by Armando de Osorio. A Pro Films and Ankla Century Films co-production. I guess the, the last one is Night of the Seagulls, which is an unusual title, but it makes sense given one of the lines mm-hmm. of the movie. It was it 1975 where the, yes. the Knights Templar returned for the fourth installment? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, here we have a, a remote village sacrifices a young woman to appease the Templars and what I guess is their demon frog god. Uh, a city couple disrupts the practice and the Templars come for them and whoever's left in the village. Uh, the opening scene with the sacrifice, I was reminded of Mark of the Devil. It's, it's got definitely that sleazy early 70s horror feel about it but it's got a lot of recycled concepts you've got the village idiot that's bullied by the townsfolk similar to return of the blind dead uh they even recycle footage from the original blind dead so this this uh, coming at the very end it's probably the most recycled film of the bunch although i like the little bit where at one point where um <laughs> a girl here screams out on the beach and the guy said he blames the screams on seagulls. seagulls. And then he says, uh, I'm just going to give you a sedative. I was like, wow, like, that's old school. Like back in the day, <laughs> if a guy had a hysterical girlfriend or wife on their hands, they wouldn't like talk to her or try to figure out what mm-hmm. was going on. They're like, no, I'm just going to drug her and put her out of commission. It's like in like, the Wild West when, or they or they prescribe <laughs> laudanum to quote unquote like hysterical women. But I was mm-hmm. like, I mean, just, in, you know, in Spain, men are men. And he's like, oh, like you're being crazy. I'm going to drug you and put you to sleep. Like, shut the fuck up. So that just. It, 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 it made me laugh the way this will be fun for it. a feminist film studies course yeah exactly <laughs> although it's a weird thing where sometimes these movies that are like blatantly kind of like chauvinistic get appropriated and like taken over and like reassessed and then like embraced by feminists a perfect example would be Faster Pussycat Kill Kill when uh, Russ Meyer made the movie he wasn't stri- stri- like striking out to make this great feminist manifesto but it's been reinterpreted in the decades since as this ultimate female empowerment movie. And now feminists fucking love that movie. So, you know, <laughs> it's weird. If you make a great movie, eventually, irrespective of what people kind of like associate themselves with or whatever causes they like to believe they're a part of, great movies speak for themselves and everybody's invited mm-hmm. to the party, irrespective of where they're, where they're coming from. But also with, uh, I-, I liked the bits in Night of the Seagulls where... You basically get to see that like a cult has emerged around them, or you actually like human beings kind of collaborating mm-hmm. with them, which I think is interesting. And I like the uh, the flashback where they're like you know the big dagger plunge when they're like digging that girl's heart. Yeah, they the ripped the heart out. Yeah, it's like all right, we're getting into some more like some rougher '70s horror cinema at this point. So I feel like Night of the Seagulls is. I guess, um, yeah, it's, it's still got its uh, its appeal. For people who like the, this franchise, it's well, well worth hunting down. 
Yeah, and I got a note here for uh, – this is Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. In 1993, De was shopping around a script for a fifth blind ad film to be called the Necronomicon of the Templars. And I'm thinking uh, – and but he failed to find a producer. But I'm thinking, uh, if Army of Darkness was a huge box office success, we would have seen one more Blind Dead film. Probably, yeah, hell yeah. Well, it's one of the things where uh, Desorio didn't die until what, like 2001 or so. Oh yeah, he yeah he hung in there. Yeah, and he kept writing screenplays and he kept making paintings like his entire life. It's one of the things where he had this incredible creative yearning and he had he needed to have an outlet. And you look at his paintings that he was doing in the latter part of his life, you can tell they still loved fantasy and sci-fi and horror and all these great genres he, he had this still like had a grand vision and still had a lot of ideas swirling around, swirling around his head but he says like looking back on his old movies he was always he loved the ideas he loved the concepts but he's always frustrated by the final product so it's kind of a tale of sadness when you hear him talking yeah. about his career because while he might have his fans especially younger filmmakers in uh, spain who have like found inspiration in his career but you can tell Osorio's is a little bittersweet looking back on his body of work just knowing what might have been given what was cooking cooking in his brain and it's still impressive that he was actually able to make a living off of those paintings like he sold those to his fans and the fact that he still had a fan base that was willing to support his work in any capacity is impressive nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, they're killer paintings. When I saw him in the documentary, I was watching this really crummy, low-res YouTube uh, version of the documentary. And even under those, circumstan- under those circumstances, like, goddamn, like, his paintings look fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, backtrack a bit to some of his other horror films that he was making in between some of these uh, other horror movies. But we got The Lorelei's Grasp from 1973. So what, what is happening here? A girl's boarding school is living a nightmare. Who will be the next victim? The Claws of Lorelei. The heart was gone. Sounds like a very old story I once heard that was told to me when I was a child. I still can't get it out of my mind. What story? The Lorelei. The monster stalks. Terror dominates their lives. The legend has turned into reality. Lorelei will be transformed into an obscene beast. She must devour human hearts in order to return to her centuries-old dream. You will stay with me throughout eternity. Laws of Lorelei. In order to live, it is necessary to kill. The Claws of Lorelei. With Tony Kendall. Elga Linné, Silvia Tortosa, Loretta Tobar, <laughs> The Claws of Lorelei. A spectacular film with a chilling story of terror and death. 
The Claws of Lorelei. Directed by Armando de Osorio. The Claws of Lorelei. Next on this screen. Uh, we have a hunter play... Oh. We have a hunter played by Tony Kendall. Uh, he's assigned to protect a boarding school of girls from a vicious creature, the Lorelei, uh, which I guess is a mix of a siren and mermaid. Uh, and I didn't realize just how popular this creature was in pop culture. You've got songs and poems and operas. Uh, Marvel Comics had a character based on the Lorelei. Uh, there was an episode of the Star Trek animated series dedicated to this creature. Interesting. So I was... Yeah, I was actually really surprised by how much this creature's reach was in pop culture. And the Osorio, I think, did an effective job of, you know, bringing this creature into what was then contemporary times. Well, it always helps if you get a smoking hot redhead who's willing to get <laughs> naked to uh, to play your monster. And so uh, I, I've, I've got a sentimental weakness for redheads. So that was uh, a delightful uh, twist. But it, also, this has a, a lot of great humor as well. There's a great scene early on where you have all the like the the girls of the school in their windows <laughs> winking at this guy with the rifle it's like this really sleazy saxo music plays yep, and so yep. it you know it's one of the things where if you like sleazy kind of sexy humor from the 70s uh, it's not just about the uh, the hard it's actually uh, it's like there's a fun, lighthearted tone throughout, so I was I was impressed by that particular sequence. Yeah, and uh, uh, Anton Garcia Abril, uh, the go-to composer for Deosaro, he has that wonderful melody uh, for the Lorelei that's played on the violin, and you have this really weird, like almost Stax record soul music that plays on as well, which really adds to that fun, lightheartedness. It's funny, like the monster looks a little bit too much like a guy like wearing like a hoodie and like a rubber mask and gloves. However, I do like the shots of like the the close-ups of the the claws like ripping into the flesh and pulling things yeah. apart and pulling things out. Like I feel like they kind of went out like when it came to exposed organs, they did a pretty goddamn good job. And I like oh, yeah, seeing gotta... the the lap dissolves when the when Lorelai's transforming. I think the the lap dissolves. Granted, like they were big with like the Wolfman back in like 1940, mm -hmm. 1941. So now you couldn't do lap dissolves now without being laughed out of the room. But the lap <laughs> dissolves here actually work pretty damn well. Yeah, they were able to keep everything in place, and just the, the caliber of gore in here. We're talking like Umberto Lenzi, almost cannibal Ferox caliber gore here. You've got breasts that are clawed off, hearts are ripped out, a guy gets disemboweled. This is some pretty extreme stuff for the early 1970s. Yeah, and more humor. I just looked at my notes. There's some more humorous stuff. There's a great little cat fight between three blondes when they're fighting over who gets to have first turn with this chained up guy. So this one actually kind of – I think I – enjoyed this one more than a lot of the others just because the the, the girl Helga Linné who plays Lorelai she's just so tremendous on screen that like as John Luc Godard famously said all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun like they don't have well they got a gun in this and they got a hot <laughs> hot redhead who turns into a monster so uh, oh yeah she reminded me of like uh, you know Edwidge Fennec you know those really oh, wonderful yeah, European heartthrobs yeah yeah she's got she got a very similar look with like like the, like the eye makeup and the eyebrows and that sort mm -hmm. of thing but yeah Edwidge Fennec is one of those actresses where she's got this like intensely passionate cult following on Twitter and I'm always embarrassed that I don't know more about her career because I know in the 70s there were a lot of people like Tarantino who just like hung upon every single appearance that she made at some point I would need to uh, do the deep dive into her entire body work because it's such an obvious thing where I've seen highlights like on MrSkin.com but anybody who's like a siren who stars in a lot of really sick and twisted like erotic horror films and thrillers throughout the 70s it's embarrassing that i'm not more of a of an authority on her body of work 
Here's two that I can direct you to. Uh, one is the violent Jallo uh, strip nude for your killer. Yep, and I've seen then, a lot of scenes from uh, that. I love that one. Uh, and Mean Frank and Crazy Tony with Michael Lobianco and Lee Van Cleef. Gotcha. Lee Van Cleef is always a crowd pleaser. All right, so very, very cool. Yeah, because strip nude for your killer, I feel like gets a, gets a lot of airtime on Twitter. People are constantly posting like posters yeah. and clips and that sort of thing. But I just need to know more about his stuff because she's just so yeah. striking in appearance. All right, well, I'm looking at the rest of his filmography. Next up, what do we got? Uh, we got Night of the Sorcerers from 1974, uh, a, a movie that will definitely not get made today. Uh, we've got uh, primitives engaged in a sacrificial ritual, uh, decapitating a woman, uh, only for her to become like a leopard woman in the, the process. Uh, the primitives are killed by colonizers after performing the ritual. Now we flash forward decades later, a group is investigating the disappearance of elephants. Uh, they end up being stalked by the same primitives uh, back from the dead. So, yeah, I, I, all I could think of was Hell of the Living Dead because you've got these cheap jungle sets. You've got stock footage. It's just, oh, God, I'm having Bruno Matai PTSD. Oh, it's yeah. Insane. <laughs> but what I liked about it is that it combines a couple different forms of undead that, once again, like he's not content to just use the familiar genre tropes. You essentially have like this zombie tribe where they take women, they tie them up, and then they stamp back and they, they sit there and whip all their clothes off, of course, because it's a, a Monday de Asorio. You have to slowly mm-hmm. but surely whip all their clothes off first. <laughs> and then they drain their blood, put them down over a slab, chop their heads off, whereupon they come back from the dead and like scream and roar. And then they tie yeah. their heads back into the bodies with like these thin little bandanas. I'm like, all right, well, these are like the most fragile vampires I've ever seen because it seems like if you untie that bandana, that head's just going to come, oh, yeah. come right off. But uh, that opening credit sequence where you see this sacrifice, the sacrificial ritual, you see the tribe get mowed down, and then you get the close-up of the head like opening his mouth and like like screaming with these fangs. I have to admit, it gave me a little, not like a jolt like I was scared, but I was like, God damn, like, that's a pretty fucking strong opening. So it, it got my attention very yeah. quickly. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I give credit to the uh, composer, Fernando uh, Garcia Morcillo, with that violin elevator music during the love scene. It's like it just adds this extra lightheartedness that we didn't get to see a lot of in some of his other films, except for maybe the Lorelei's Grasp and Things of the Living Dead. Here he's pretty much playing that same lighthearted tone. And the vocalist was eerily similar to Edda Del Orso, who worked a lot with Morricone. So the music was really good here, as well as just given us something different that we wouldn't see in an Osorio film. And I think the, the nudity is on point in this as well. I think it's almost like he's going above and beyond what's expected even from some of his other movies where, like, if somebody's coming out of a tent in the morning and like, say, hey, what's going on? A girl would just kind of casually come out with their titties out and just kind of casually put their <laughs> shirt on. Like, all right, well, you just... Are, you're clearly not very shy, but I also like seeing how slowly but surely these vampire women are hunting down and recruiting the other women in the movie. And so you always had this kind of pack of beautiful chicks with fangs and bandana on the neck, slow, but kind of systematically adding more women to their ranks. So I, I've always been turned on by scary vampire chicks in horror movies. So I have to admit that Night of the Sorcerers was... It's a, it's a hard one to find, but is that the one where you sent me that really weird link on like Garai yeah. film? Yeah, it's yeah, really really it. tough to find, but it was well worth a look. And yeah, once again, it, it definitely felt like we were back in Bruno Mattei territory, but I think this is one of uh, De Osorio's stronger movies. Yeah, and uh, here we see him as a master of the lap dissolve again with uh, the ritual site slowly coming back to its former self. You have the, the mist coming out of the rocks. You've got the fire starting by itself. You've got the heads on stakes fading in. So this is another great example of 
well done lap dissolve. He also he uses this a lot in the the Blind Dead series, but as well as in here, where you've got somebody running, screaming, terrified for their life, and the people pursuing them are running in slow motion. And I remember as a kid, whenever I would see that trope in a horror movie, like, well, that person's gonna get away just fine. Like they're never gonna get caught because <laughs> you would see Jason kind of like slowly striding through the woods, and then some eighteen-year-old track star just booking their way through the woods, just hauling ass. Like, well, how's <laughs> Jason, ever going to catch anybody, <laughs> but you, you see that quite a bit in Night of the Sorcerers. Yep. Yeah. And well, with Jason, you know, as we see from the video game, he, teleportation is now canon with him. So he, he's a teleporter. Interesting. So. Yeah, I never played that Friday the 13th video game. Was it pretty cool? Yeah, it's enjoyable. It's uh, fun playing as Jason, but it's it's also fun playing as a counselor. So it's a very cool, casual experience. I'll never forget. I was taking my little brother and a bunch of his friends to a movie sometime. And they were like, 12 or 13 and a trailer just come out for that game but it was a highlight reel of jason just killing all the counselors in a variety of ways with this kick-ass 80s guitar music and i remember (laughs) i had it on my phone and i was driving so i just kind of passed the phone over my shoulder i was like all right boys check this out and they started watching it and they handed it back to him about halfway through. They're like, that's fucked up. It was like, <laughs> it was like upsetting them. It was too hardcore for their impressionable young eyes. I was like, all right, well, that, that, that just shows that video games, but doing, doing what it's supposed to. Oh, yeah. All right, so what is next on our, uh, what is next on our to-do list? I have 1975's Demon Witch Child, which nice. may very well be my favorite De Osorio film. Well, we're here we are in, we're back in the world of ripoff cinema. So set the stage for us in terms of ripoff cinema and some of the trends that were going on in Europe in the 60s and 70s. Because I think a lot of times people overlook just how many unofficial sequels, remakes, and ripoffs were just being produced all over the continent at that time. Oh, this was absolutely a knockoff of The Exorcist. And although, to the film's credit, it came out a year before The Omen, so it kind of has that going for it. Uh, You have a chalice stolen from a church, as well as a newborn baby that was kidnapped, uh, being sacrificed to bring back the spirit of a witch. Uh, The witch possesses the body of the young daughter of a local official, and the girl just wreaks havoc on the family. Uh, The lead actress, uh, Marion Salgado, a fantastic performance by her, she was actually the dub actress for the girl in The Exorcist, uh, Lil Reagan. She provided her Spanish voice. Very nice. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, you've got Lone Fleming returning, as well as uh, Fernando Sancho. Uh, the music by Diego and Victor. This is like pre-Goblin and Fabio Frizzi, and I couldn't help but feel some of the similarities to their work. So I love the music here. And this is just a great example of less is more. Uh, you have all the violent stuff happening off screen. It lets your imagination fill in the blanks, and what you imagine is far worse than anything they can ever be put on screen. Well, the the version of this movie that I saw, I don't know if it's the same transfer everywhere, but it's one of those classic, really scratchy, really poppy prints that are turning brown that basically somehow has been scanned and placed online. (laughs) But I do, I mean, I'm not one of those film purist that thinks that like, you know, with the dip with like no, no more film prints that essentially like the art of film is gone. Cause for me, the art of film is it's, it's, pictures and sound moving pictures and sound sight and sound etc and it's more than it, it transcends the medium upon which it is used however there's something about there's just a novelty and an excitement to watching a movie in the theater with a, a beatable print especially if you're watching a trashy old 
ripoff mm -hmm. piece of cinema. So even though I was watching a digital version, it gave it a little bit of extra texture and flavor, having like green scratches all over it and like <laughs> big nasty audio pops and like the, the audio track going in and out. So that that definitely added to the charm of watching the oh, movie. Oh yeah, it's what uh, the Grindhouse double feature tried to replicate, yeah. but yet here you have the real McCoy. Yeah, we're like, we're like missing reels and things like that, but this is just a straight up fucked up print and no one's ever gonna invest the money <laughs> in finding like the original negative to do a, a proper transfer. And I, I love, I think my favorite moment in the movie reminded me of straight up of like the 1960s uh, TV show of Batman, where the little witch, witch girl, possessed witch girl, mm -hmm. climbs out of her window and basically climbs down the wall in order to pounce a guy. But they just flip the camera upside down and just film her climbing a wall. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, it's corny, but it, it, it kind of works. And this is pretty goddamn hardcore because. After she does that, she jumps on this guy, smashes his head in, demands that he fuck her, and then like unzips his fly and says, well hung, before chopping yep. his dick off. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that's, I, that's a little girl <laughs> doing this. Like, I know they've got her dressed up as like an old lady, but it is a teenage girl killing this guy and trying to basically fuck him and take his dick off. And I was like, all right, well, this movie's clearly, we are now in the mid-70s, and the, the gloves are off. <laughs> And you have one actually really uh, – this story is not really known for doing a lot of in-camera and editing effects. But there's one scene where uh, the girl – they filmed like two halves of the girl. And you have one scene where her torso and legs are facing in opposite directions. And like that sequence, I did not expect and I nearly fell off my couch from watching. It's like, wow, there's some really good – technical stuff in here that's not really known that's not really Sorio's forte but he did it really good there absolutely I mean I imagine when they saw when the exorcist was just a, a cultural phenomenon and you know, massive money earner and I imagine they just saw that and like alright well we gotta do at least a nod to every major classic <laughs> beat and so obviously everybody remembers little Reagan her head spinning around so they, they came up with their own version of it at a slightly uh, lower budget but I think it actually yeah it worked pretty well I, I kind of I involuntarily kind of leaned my head back and I was like oh alright all right, that's, that's kind of interesting looking at least it's I hadn't quite seen an effect like that in a horror movie before it's like what Tom Savini said before he saw Fulci Zombie it's like okay so let's see how they're going to try and top us and so here you have this exorcist knockoff trying to do the exact same thing absolutely but I guess in like on the whole, obviously, when it comes to unofficial sequels, ripoffs, etc., like the Italians are the heavyweight champions. Mm -hmm. But the Spanish horror movement at this point, it seems like you at least got like three or four people that are getting away with it. Like, what was their big main audience at this time? I mean, was it the Italians? Was it the Americans? Or was it the French? Like, who who was? Because uh, obviously, these were cultural exports. Was there a specific country that embraced these films more than another? I've always heard Japan being the big one. Uh, Japan, uh, Japan made Cannibal Holocaust a blockbuster. They made it competitive to E.T. of all movies. Wow! So the yeah, the Japan, the Japanese, they love these sick, gory horror movies. And even when John Saxon was filming Cannibal Apocalypse, he went to Japan as a way to get away from the production. And he saw these movies were just so popular in that country. Like Japan, pretty much financed Italy for almost a good half decade. Gotcha. Interesting. I mean, obviously, the, the, the Japanese have a pretty extraordinary tradition of their own horror films, but I guess you can, I mean, the Spanish horror films get in, in progressively more bizarre and bananas and intense as time goes by. But I, yeah, it would be interesting to see or kind of figure out which Spanish director, or which uh, Japanese directors were inspired by which Italian and Spanish horror maestros, but that maybe have to be a topic for another day. 
Well, now we start getting into the period of Amado de Osorio's career where sadly, he kind of falls on hard times. The opportunities start coming fewer and farther between. As I mentioned before, he never stopped writing, and he always stayed busy, but he, it became increasingly difficult to get projects off the ground. Have you had a chance to have a look at his, uh, what is it, Las Alimañas from 1977? Yes, that was The Pest, I believe. Yeah, that was the one that was uh, the title translated into The Pest. But no, that was uh, one I found on YouTube, but the strictly Spanish language, no subtitles, I wasn't able to get into it. Yeah, I'm seeing two bandits steal a number of gems and other valuable art from a museum in the Dominican Republic. They're helped by their American partner, Tom Bred, who double-crosses them and escapes with the stolen treasure. But written by Armando de Osorio, directed by Armando de Osorio, but it's got a pretty uh, lurid poster with a guy holding a satchel and this insanely beautiful girl lying on her back. <laughs> she looks like uh, Sophia Loren, like, like in the early 60s. So at a bare minimum, they went all out with the hand-drawn illustration for their uh, for their art. So we'll give him a credit, props for that. And then his, uh, his <laughs> next movie, I looked long and hard for this and I was unable to find it, but Forbidden Passion from 1980, starring the great Susana Estrada. It's a, kind of a softcore erotic film, not, not really a porn film, but not really like a, a straight up drama either. But in the documentary that I saw on YouTube, they showed a few clips and I was able to find a few scenes here and there, but there are a couple of pirate sites that all claim to have it for Pasión Prohibida, but um, mm -hmm. none of them actually had it in its entirety. So I am curious to see what it's all about because obviously, uh, I mean, he's, he did a pretty good job with the nudity in his previous movies, but this is where nudity is the, the, the main attraction. Mm -hmm. But he's, uh, Teresa, a cabaret stripper, has to leave her work due to, death, to the death of her father. She decides to go to the small village where her brother Miguel lives. He's going to marry Marisol soon. Teresa begins to feel attracted to Miguel and tries to seduce him. So sounds nice and lurid and trashy and that sort of thing. So I will have to hunt it down at some point. But I, I looked for about an hour and couldn't find it. So I just finally gave up. And even Mr. Skin, yeah. which has a lot of Susan Estrada clips from other movies, did not have anything from Pasión Prohibida. That's unfortunate. Yeah, indeed. So well, let's dip our toes into the final film of Amanda de Osorio's career, which also happened to be the final film of Ray Milan's career. Ray Milan's my <laughs> grandmother's favorite movie star. But we have The Sea Serpent from 1984, which is available in 10 little individual clips on YouTube for anyone who wants to hunt it down. So crack this nut for us. How, how do you make the pitch for The Sea Serpent? Okay, so an atomic bomb mutates an underwater animal into a man-eating creature. Uh, clearly, this was America's fault because the generals had a picture of Ronald Reagan in the background. So clearly, it was our fault. Uh, this is a Spanish knockoff of the kaiju genre, Godzilla and Jaws, and featuring a blatantly rip-off version of the Jaws theme. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, they, I think they yeah. changed, like, I mean, the Jaws theme is pretty simple, but they changed, like, one or two notes, but pretty much it's the Jaws theme. And the monster I can only describe as a homicidal Kermit the Frog. Uh, yeah, just a, a weird... It's a, it's a giant puppet, but I say it's, it's when it comes to giant monster movies where it's a blatant sock puppet for the monster, it looks pretty good, and I actually have to admit that when it's swimming around in the water... It yeah, still looks, when you don't see it, it's scary. <laughs> it looks pretty convincing. It's only when it's clearly like a guy over like a model playset with like a puppet mm -hmm. on his hand smashing buildings. Like, all right, well, that's clearly got the puppet just having fun with his toys. But I, once again, for me, he got, I wouldn't say he got champagne for the price of beer, but he definitely at least got nice beer for the price of mm -hmm. shitty beer. And so it, oh, yeah. 
and it's got Timothy Bottoms in there and Taryn Power, who was in um, uh, Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger. Like, it actually does have, I guess it's a sign of just how much Timothy Bottoms and Ray Milland were struggling at this point. And I don't even think Timothy Bottoms got to dub his own voice. Like Ray Milland, you can tell, dubbed himself, even mm-hmm. though it doesn't really match. But is Timothy Bottoms yeah. doing his own voice in this? Uh, it didn't sound like Timothy Bottoms. And my only reference for Timothy Bottoms is the show That's My Bush, which was uh, briefly on Comedy Central. Oh, well, so. he's one of the stars of the Last Picture Show, the Peter Bogdanovich film. So, yeah. That, that, like, that's his first big major claim to fame but I mean here we are like 13, 14 years after Last Picture Show and oh and he's also in Johnny Got His Gun the uh, Dalton mm-hmm. Trumbo movie so he's he in the 70s was beginning to have something resembling a pretty cool career but flash forward to the mid 80s sadly he's in The Sea Serpent and he's not even allowed to do his own voice and he also got uh, Jared Martin who I know from Lucio Fulci's The New Gladiators a uh, couple of small parts. You've got Jack Taylor, who was in a lot of, uh, who was one of the Osorio's regulars, uh, and then you also got Vic Israel, who was the drunken watchman, not the one in the lighthouse, but no, the one that was kind of like on the floating platform. Uh, just really crazy characters for such a movie. And you know what? I want to see the lighthouseman get his own movie. The guy that was actually talking to himself and having a chess game with himself. I, like, I want to see this guy get his own movie. Now, how come Amanda de Osorio worked under pseudonyms for this? Because he as screenplay, he was Gordon A. Osborne, but he did write it. And as director, it was Gregory Greens, but it was uh, a written and directed by Amanda de Osorio film. I, I'm sure it was the same case with Joe D'Amato and the Ator films. He just couldn't bring himself to admit that he made these movies. And this was sort of this was his final film. And it's like, OK, I, I can't bring myself to even credit myself on my final film. Just give me whatever pseudonym you can possibly give me. I mean, there's some little bits that I enjoyed. Like, I liked how they tried to tie it into all the famous illustrations and drawings of sea serpents in the 1800s, where obviously the drawings of sea serpents they don't look like whales. They don't look like sharks. So it's like, what the hell are these people so obsessively <laughs> drawing? So they're like, you know what? These things exist. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. And there are also just some really funny, just awful lines of dialogue. At one point, these guys are in a boat and they've just been attacked by the uh, by the creature. And one person wants to go back and save their friends. And this guy's like, stop making guesses. Like, you know, he like, you know, we need to get out of here. But I was like, stop making guesses. Like, that's a really <laughs> awkward, clumsy line. And then later on, when Timothy Bottoms and Taron Power are trying to come up with a plan about what to do, and he has this brilliant line where he says, we need to find an important man, convince him of the truth. I was like, all right, (laughs) (laughs) that's a classic leading man plan. We need to find an important man and convince him of the truth. I was like, I I was enjoying myself and having fun as the story unfolded. And the poster is fucking next level. The poster is killer. (laughs) Yeah, you actually have two uh, yeah. guys, like basically who look naked on a wooden wooden raft or lifeboat with like a stick and like all these waves surging all around him and this enormous creature like tearing through a lighthouse. The, the poster definitely promises, uh, you know, something like the, the 1954 Godzilla. Obviously, it doesn't quite match it, but once again, if you don't have a movie, at a bare minimum, you can afford a poster. Oh, yeah. It, it just the poster itself looks like it's supposed to be like a David DeCocteau film or something like that. It's just all these husky men just trying to fight a monster. It's it's the most ridiculous but funny nonsense you could ever see. All right. Well, I'm looking at my notes and my notes from the documentary as well as his flicks. I don't have anything else that I'm burning to share or mention, but are there any aspects of his career, any anecdotes, any details from his films that we have not had a chance to touch upon yet that you want to share? Uh, let me just quickly uh, scroll back through my notes. Uh, he was uh, in the Lower Lies Grasp. Uh, there's uh, evidence of prop recycling. 
on the wall of the scientist, uh, you could see the arm of the Templar like hanging on the wall in the background, which I thought was kind of amusing. Uh, and also in the Lorelei's grasp, there's a sequence where acid is poured on a guy's face. And all I could think of is the acid sequence in the hospital at the beyond. So for the credit, for as much as we can probably knock Deosorio, he's really responsible for, you know, planting those seeds in some future directors. Also, um, was it? No, it's not Night of the Source. Night of the Seagulls. At the very end, you quite literally have the, uh, the the ending of Evil Dead, where you have the undead slowly but surely fall into pieces, where you get like the the projectile spraying blood coming out of their eyes. Yeah. And everything. Sam Raimi, a hundred percent saw at a bare minimum <laughs> the last scene of Night of the Seagulls. It just, the similarities are just too eerie to be mm-hmm. de- to be denied. Oh yeah, and just it, it's just evidence that and. Just evidence that you know, De Osorio was just really one of those directors that doesn't get enough credit for how much of an impact he's had on directors, whether it's you know Fulci or whether it's Sam Raimi or Peter Jackson. These guys should you know just give a tip of the hat to him every once in a while. Are you aware of any directors that point to him as an influence or that that, that admire him or anything along those lines? Uh, I have never heard anyone credit uh, De Osorio much like here we like we hear about Tarantino, uh, Amagin, you know Kest. Castellari and you know Kurosawa and Leone. It's like yeah, speaking of Enzo uh, G. Castellari, what do you think of uh, the poster for Apparazione Dynamite, which appeared in uh, Once Upon uh, a Time in Hollywood? I want that movie to be made. I just just put it directly in my veins. That's all. That's all I want is those crazy nutsy. You were the first person uh, I thought of when I saw that poster in that part of the movie where he goes off to Italy and does three or four movies in a row. And we've talked about those some of those movies with Tony Stella. I've talked about some of those kinds of movies with you, but it really is a, a, a neglected but essential part of film history. The fact that all these actors could go off to Europe and basically cash in on their fading reputation in America and just bang out a couple of quick down and dirty police thrillers or horror movies or westerns. It just, the posters were gorgeous. The movies have killer scores. They got like savage brutality and they're just, they're just so damn cool. And I, what I really loved about that bit was when uh, you see the stunt of the car jumping over the bridge and it pauses and a little arrow points and says like, this is Cliff or just what maybe just points and says Cliff Booth. I was like, yeah, hell yeah. Like this, the stunt man, he can't get work in America. Everybody thinks he's a fucking killer, but at least in Italy, he could still jump a car like a total, like evil Knievel over a fucking bridge mm-hmm. and, and get some work. I don't know, you look. You think of the people that just made a living in Italy. You know, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Martin Balsam, uh, stuntman uh, Remy Julien. These guys made second careers and second lives for themselves in Italy. So, or, like, or you know Lee what, Cleef and all these guys. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're offering the money, hey, follow the money. That's like it's the best thing you can do whether you're in, whether you're an uh, actor or stuntman or supporting role. Just if Italy was still around, like they still had their film industry. The it would still be just like some of the best stuff on earth. Yeah, it's a weird thing where in Italy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, whether you're talking about classy, sophisticated, big-budget productions by guys like Lucchino Visconti, or you're talking about the most down-and-dirty, mean-and-nasty spaghetti western you've ever seen, they just made so much astonishingly cool shit. And it just makes you think, what changed where that culture dried up and maybe it was like a situation where like certain tax incentives were no longer being offered to productions being shot there. But it's just incredible like that you could have so many decades of like cinematic richness followed by, I mean, I guess in the eighties you still had guys like Lamberto Bava and people like that that were still doing like cool stuff. But it just is, it's a shame when you see like, I mean, when you look at like Japan, it's like from the forties till now, there've always been a handful of really great directors cranking out good mm-hmm. shit. Or you look at France, 
from like the 30s or 20s up till now, there's always been a handful of directors cranking out cool shit. And with Italy, just like you have this like couple decades and then followed by just this like no man's land. It's just it's a total mystery to me. I think a lot of it is just that they over flooded a lot of the distribution channels that they had. Like they made too many movies for American markets or too many movies for uh, whether it's, you know, I don't think Britain was one of their big ones, but Germany was another one that they really had a lot of success with. And so it's like you can only do so much. You can only uh, flood the wells so much that you're just not going to get any anything out of it anymore yeah i guess if you oversaturate you can definitely drive a lot you like you can drive yourself and your competitors out of business just from like a, a glut of content so yeah i think that's that's totally fair well who else from the 60s and 70s apart from bruno Mattei, enzo g castellari and amano de osorio who are some of these forgotten masters that you love and adore that perhaps people are totally unaware of but you think are, are worth uh, people for worth people spending a lot of time hunting down their 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 forgotten careers because I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has really put a fire under my ass about trying to hunt down just forgotten filmmakers who have really interesting careers that just haven't necessarily been called attention to. Like if you do a video or a podcast about George Cukor or Frank Capra or John Ford, people will listen and they'll watch. But I really want to start trying to find these neglected masters and forgotten forgotten storytellers. And so I, I, I'm I'm all in on trying to do as much homework on this front as possible. Uh, I was some, yeah, uh, definitely ones uh, for those with extreme tastes. I would go with Joe D'Amato. I would say Umberto Lenzi. These are guys that were really popular with uh, the late 70s, early 80s splatter horror. But you've got Joe D'Amato, who did a wonderful giallo with Klaus Kinski called uh, Death Smiles on a Murderer, which is like one of the a premier looking production. Uh, Lindsay did a lot of like war movies during the 1960s, which were really popular uh, that were on almost the same level as what you would say from like a, a William Wyler or John Sturgis or Howard Hawks. What do you know about, I think his name is Joe. Is it Joe, Joe Sarno? He's kind of like an erotic filmmaker. Is that his name or what the hell? There's somebody with like a, a name like Sarno who made a lot of erotic films in America in the 60s and 70s that I've always wanted to uh, hunt down, but I, I'm, t- I'm a total blank slate. I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, let me quickly just pull up Grapes of Death. Uh, Jean Rolin. Oh, well, no, I'm aware of him because I've seen some of his oh, stuff. Like, okay. I saw Fascination with, uh, like, like, Bridget LaHaye or however you pronounce her name. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. Jean, Jean, Jean Rollin or Jean Rollin, however you say it. That, that is a filmmaker who's definitely, who's also on my radar that I want to learn a lot more about because I wrote this post a couple of years ago about my top 10 erotic horror films. And it's my, my most popular written post of all time. It's got nearly 200,000 views at this point. I'm like, shit, wish I'd made that a fucking YouTube <laughs> video. I'd make some serious bank off that thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get prepared to do an erotic horror film video but I do need to do more homework with Jean Raline in order to do that video convincingly but yeah with Joe Sarno it's, I must be fucking up the name because I'm, I'm on uh, IMDb right now and nothing's coming up with the name so I must have it slightly off but I'll do some more homework on that front but there is a, somebody who's like just one of those Bradley Metzger kind of softcore artists from the 60s and 70s who helped blow the doors off of uh, censorship. But I'm just uh, not 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 putting together the, the right letters in the right order for IMDb to figure out what it is I'm looking for. But when it comes to this podcast oh, and promoting your work, I'm always 100% down 
to celebrate the careers of all these forgotten genre kind of exploitation guys. So anytime you want to shoot the shit about any of them, I hope you know that our door is always open to you. Awesome. And yep, I actually found him, Joseph W. Sarno. Okay. All right, so, so, all right. So I wasn't crazy. Joseph W. Sarno. So what, what are his what are his big movies? I'm looking at uh, Daddy, uh, Daddy Darling. I'm looking at The Devil's Plaything, uh, Sin in the Suburbs. So this is like, you know, predating Cinemax, what you would probably expect as far as titles and films go nice well i mean it's one of those things where i just uh i it's always fun just having a little bit of like secret knowledge that other people do not have yet joseph w sarno well, yeah i wonder why he wasn't coming up or maybe he's like he's so frowned upon that imdb wasn't willing <laughs> to but he's got 120 three fucking credits like that's just extraordinary to be like when i did my episode recently about uh jesse james and i found this guy who made this movie jesse james meets the daughter of frankenstein and it was oh, you know, yeah. a terrible movie but it was the 350th movie in the career that director's like what the fuck how do you make 350 <laughs> movies over the course of your career and i just find those chapters of film history to be Absolutely fascinating. So here we are. Joseph W. Sarno, born in Brooklyn in 1921, made 123 movies, and a lot of them are these kind of titillating, softcore, erotic films from the 1960s and 70s. I, I'm all in on trying to figure out which of those are worth watching. And he directed under a bunch of different names. He had like Hammond Thomas, Lawrence Henning, Otis Hamling, Joe Sarno, Carl Anderson. Just like the, he has all these aliases. And was it Bruno Matai who also worked with some aliases when we when we tackled his career? Oh yeah, Bruno Matai has no shortage of aliases. Gotcha. All right. Well, once again, like so, my offer is on the table. Anything and everything on this front. I just feel like the sixties and seventies has so many thousands of gems like this that are waiting to be discovered. I just <laughs> I, I, I want to see them all. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll go ahead and I'll, I, I've actually seen uh, one of his entries, Suburban Secrets, much to my shame. But you know what? Uh, I, I wouldn't mind checking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, this 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 could be an interesting rabbit hole to go wonder for. Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. Well, where can people find you online if they want to listen to your podcast, talk to you about horror movies, talk to you about war movies, Italian genre films, Spanish genre films, etc. It seems like you you're you're pretty game for a, a wide range of topics. Uh, they can find me on Twitter and Facebook under Cinema Mac. Uh, I'm also uh, the host of Mac and the Movies. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify, Podomatic and google play so and you know what i'm always interested in talking about movies no matter what i'm and what, what, do you, what, do you got, what do you got cooking in the oven in terms of content that people can look forward to upcoming up uh, this monday i'm going to drop my tribute to billy drago uh two weeks after that it's going to be uh the tribute to rutger hauer and then i'm probably going to take a look at the films of roddy piper interesting gotcha so apart from they live what else is in what, what other <laughs> gems are in the career of roddy piper i'm i'm, I'm a fan there's Immortal Combat, where he teams up with Sonny Chiba and uh, Blink and You'll Miss It cameo by a young Chris Jericho. Uh, there's also Hell Comes to Frogtown. So there's going to be – and Sci Fighters, where he fights against Billy Drago. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to check out with uh, Roddy Piper. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they live – well, I feel like even people who knew nothing about professional wrestling, like mm -hmm. they live will keep his reputation in alive for, for decades, but – Man, that scene where he and Keith David throw down, it, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's special. <laughs> what was that line? He's like, either you put on the glasses or start eating that or side. Or eat your trash can. Or eating that trash can. <laughs> All right, it doesn't quite make sense, but you delivered it with such sincerity that I, that I buy it. And they 
just did. They just beat the fucking shit out of each other for like 10 straight mm-hmm. minutes. It's, it's wonderful, beautiful stuff. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much, for all, as always, for exposing me to all these directors that oftentimes I'd never even heard of prior to you bringing them up. Like whenever you, you'll send me these DMs, you're like, how'd you like to do an episode about so-and-so? And I, maybe, like, I don't know, like, who is this person? And you're like, oh, they did this and this and this. So I just, I, I'm always impressed by how wide a net you cast into the uh, forgotten chapters of film history. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, it's good to know. Very cool. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this podcast. Definitely hunt down some of these flicks and definitely feel free to make suggestions if you'd like to hear episodes on any directors that kind of played in this space. But uh, leave us a rating review on iTunes. It's very helpful. If you want to talk to me on Twitter, you can do so at Colbrax. And if you want to see some video content, you can hunt down my channel, Geeking with James Hancock. I posted a big review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and did a bunch of, gave some shout outs to some of the forgotten gems that helped inspire that movie. Um, also had a review of season one of The Boys on Amazon, so definitely hunt me down there. But can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.